for today's story, we are lucky enough to be joined by Gretchen Rubin to tell us a story about happiness. Gretchen is a four-time New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and speaker. She is the creator of the Happiness Project, but also most appropriately to Harry Potter, which I'm really excited to talk to her about. She's the creator of the Four Tendencies Framework, which Gretchen, I know that you have said is similar to the Hogwarts houses. Is that correct? Well, it's similar in that it divides people into four categories. So I'm kind of like the muggle sorting hat, (laughs) but it's very important to understand that the Four Tendencies do not track the houses of Hogwarts because Hermione is probably the most famous upholder in the world right now. And there is no way that Fred and George are upholders. And yet they're all, they're all three of them proud Gryffindor. So yeah, the houses of Hogwarts do not match up to the four tendencies. Can you just walk our listeners through the four tendencies and how it's a helpful tool? So the four tendencies has to do with how a person meets expectations. And all of us face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline or a request from a friend, and inner expectations like our own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, our own desire to practice guitar more. So there are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. This is the sorting hat part of it. Um, And upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they turn everything into an inner expectation. They'll do it if they buy into it. If not, they will resist. And they typically don't like anything arbitrary or inefficient or irrational. That's me. And I think that that is also our co-host, Casper. Excellent. Interesting. Okay. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So, um, and I got my first insight into this with a friend of mine who was on the track team in high school. And she said, well, I don't understand. When I was in the track team in high school, I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now on my own? And it's like, well, when she had a team and a coach waiting for her, no problem. When she was trying to go on her own, it was a struggle. And then finally, there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way in their own time. They can do anything they choose to do, but if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. They typically don't even like to tell themselves what to do. So those are the four tendencies. And as I said, the clearest example of the tendencies in Harry Potter and in the world of real people and fictional people alike is Hermione. Hermione is sort of the most textbook example of an upholder. And I say that with great pride because that is my tendency. You're a questioner. I'm an upholder. Fascinating. I'm wondering what you think about the houses in general, because obviously you're someone who believes that putting labels on things can help us understand ourselves and can help us be healthier people, get through the world in you know more effective ways where we live up to our values. And we very much believe in that as well. And so I'm wondering what you think about the houses. The longer that I spend time in the Hogwarts universe, the more resistant I am to the houses. I don't really understand what purpose they serve other than a building of community by sorting children at such a young age. And I'm wondering what you think about them. Well, it's funny because the sorting hat itself, of course, voices that concern and says, you know, I'm designed to divide you up, but I worry that it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm taking delight in how well you know the books. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, I love I love Harry Potter. Um, no, and I think that's exactly the concern. And then also, it's sort of like, well, if someone's in Slytherin, there's no witch or wizard that went bad that wasn't in Slytherin, and yet then there's greatness in Slytherin too. And so then, are you sort of painting people with this brush or creating this expectation in them that they would go wrong or that they're more likely to kind of go to the bad? And how would that affect someone? I agree. I mean, one of the things I like about my own framework is that it's very narrow. It doesn't tell you anything about anybody other than how they respond to expectations. So you're a questioner. We could take 50 questioners and line them up. And depending on how ambitious they were, how adventurous they were, how creative they were, how analytical they were, how curious they were, what their values were, they would all look different from each other. Very, very different. But if you said to this person, would you do this for me? All the questioners would say together, why should I? Because that is what it is to be a questioner. It doesn't tell you anything else about yourself. The houses of Hogwarts do seem to try to paint a whole picture of someone in a way that to me seems kind of too broad a brush. Right. There's a lot of associations with it. Like, what does it mean to be Ravenclaw, for instance? Like, what what do we think is part of that? Uh, yeah, my concern with the houses is exactly, it, I guess it's sort of a rebel response to the houses, but it's, we'll start to live up to the worst possible expectations of ourselves and, and how much it will, you know, limits the opportunities for growth. So much of what our podcast is about is the ability to imagine yourself into being the person who you want to be. And I feel like the houses don't free you up to imagine yourself into being all these different kinds of people because you have to be brave first. You have to be. It's funny though, because your your uneasiness with the four categories is very questioner. You might think that <laughs> yes. rebels would be the most resistant to having a label, but they're not. They're like, this is me. I have these reactions. I I have these thoughts. That's very much me. Whereas questioners are like, well, sometimes I would act like an upholder, but sometimes I would act like a rebel. And so how could I put, you know, and, and they will often say things like, well, human beings are, there's just so much, so much multiplicity. How could we possibly find this label? And I'm like, yeah, but everybody who says that is a questioner. This concern, this, if you define me, you confine me is very much something that comes with questioner territory. Not that it's not a legitimate thing for everybody to think about, because of, yeah, of course, yeah. it's just funny that upholders, obligers, and rebels much more readily say, oh, I see how I fit very solidly within a category that sort of explains the pattern of my behavior, whereas questioners are like, people are too different from each other. Like, how can we possibly sum ourselves up? Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't say people are morning people, people are night people or whatever. And it can be useful because it's sort of a shorthand. And then it also becomes impersonal. It's like, oh, well, you, I get that you're asking a lot of questions because questioners do that. I don't have to feel like you're undermining <laughs> my authority or questioning my judgment. You just want to know why. And that's fine. That's like, there's a lot of value and strength to that. I don't have to get annoyed with it. I just have to say, well, I know you need robust justification. So I'm happy to answer your questions. Do you hear that, everybody? I just need robust answers to my questions. And I feel like that's very reasonable. Now, of course, different environments, different circumstances, different cultures are going to reward or punish a certain kind of tendency more. So you might like if you're born in North Korea and you're a questioner, you're going to learn to keep your mouth shut. Right. Even if you're still a questioner inside. But if you were in Silicon Valley, you might be very rewarded for it. In a certain kind of community, your questioning could be seen as highly engaging. And in another community, it could be like, why are you resisting this? You need to understand this is the way that it is and accept it. Fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you forever about this, <laughs> but I know that we invited you onto the show to tell a story from your life or in general under the theme of happiness. Yes. 
This is a story from my life from many years ago. And I was living in Washington, D.C. And at that time, I was working as a lawyer. And I was doing very well as a lawyer, if I say so myself. I had just graduated from Yale Law School, where I had been editor-in-chief of the Law Review there, the Yale Law Journal. And I was living in Washington, D.C. And I was clerking on the Supreme Court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, which was a fantastic opportunity and something that I love to do. But as I was there, certain realizations began to press themselves into my mind. And one was, you know, I was surrounded by people who loved law. You know, all my co-clerks, there were like 30 of us, during the lunch hour, they were talking about the cases. And on the weekends, they were reading law journals for fun. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I do as little as I can get away with. I wanted to do an outstanding job for Justice O'Connor. I did the very best job that I could, but I didn't spend one extra minute on it than I had to, to do my job for her. And I was also getting pulled toward a subject. I had had a realization. I was outside on a bright day going for a, a walk on my lunch hour one day. And I thought, well, what am I interested in the world? Just sort of as an abstract rhetorical question. And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And like in my mind, it became like power, money, fame, sex. And I just became compelled to do massive amounts of research on this subject. And I was reading about it and I was taking notes and I was thinking through like, what are these worldly passions? And around that time, I went over to the, the house of a friend who was in education graduate school. And she had all these very thick, boring looking textbooks lying on her coffee table. And I said, kind of dismissively, I pointed to one of them and I said, ah, oh, is this what you have to read for your program? And she said, oh, well, you know, this is what I read on my own anyway. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want to be doing for my day job what I would be choosing to do on the weekend, just as she was. And I realized these people who loved law, they were doing law on the weekend. What was I doing in my free time on my weekends after work? I was writing and researching on this subject that I had made up. And that's when it occurred to me, that's the kind of thing a person would do if they were writing a book. And that's something that some people do as a profession. Some people write books. And that's when I really began to grapple with the possibility that maybe that's what I wanted to do. Maybe I wanted to be a writer. And as I allowed myself to think that through, I began to become more and more drawn to the idea of, well, maybe I need to give it a shot. Maybe I really need to give it a try. And then finally, I said to myself, well, actually, at this point, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And so I really need to give myself the opportunity to try. And it was at that point that I thought, okay, I'm not going to take another law job. I'm going to spend my time trying to write a proposal, trying to write an outline, try to get an agent, try to do everything you would do to try to write a book. And that is what I did. Thank you so much. That story resonates with me so incredibly because I remember the drudgery of when I worked at an education nonprofit of, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who works with integrity, but like, going in right at nine, leaving right at five, at 4.55, not starting a new task because I was like, oh, that would keep me here past five. And I was not serving anyone by doing the bare minimum in that job. Everybody was losing out while I was doing that. Well, I mean, and that's the same thing with me. I was surrounded by people who loved law. 
you know, it, it's not that there's something wrong with law or that it's better to be a writer. It's just that it's better for me. But I think sometimes when you have this sort of idea of what you would love, it's scary to think like, if I never try, I always have this fantasy that maybe it's this alternative path. But if I try and fail, then I have to deal with that. But really, and this is what the happiness research shows, we're much more likely to regret the things that we don't do than the things that we do do. Yeah. You know, and I feel like this is something that we see in a very kind of concrete example in Harry Potter and the Unexpected Task, where he wants to ask out Cho Chang, he wants to take her to the Yule Ball, but he's scared. And he procrastinates asking her because he's like, well, until I ask her, she won't accept the offer, but she also won't reject it. And so he really does want to ask her, but he can't steal himself up. But at a certain point, he does. He takes his shot. And I felt like that's what I need to do. I need to take my shot. I need to either succeed or fail. And, and she turned him down. But he had tried, you know, and there's something that comes from having tried that you, you have that peace of mind. You're like, well, I asked. What's so interesting also is that we know that Harry is good at getting people on their own if he wants to. We, for Pardes just a few weeks ago, we randomly put our finger on the line where Harry breaks Cedric's bag in order to get Cedric alone to tell him about the dragons. And so I know that Harry in this chapter says, like, why do they have to travel in packs about girls and why he can't access Cho? But we know that when Harry wants to do something, he finds a way to do it. So, and then in the end, he just says, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And she's like, Okay. I mean, it's like, you don't even have to cast a spell for that. I think it's just a symptom of his looking for a reason to procrastinate. And we've all been there when you're like, Well, I'm waiting for the perfect time. I'm waiting for the perfect opportunity. I want to wait until she's standing by herself. I don't want to have to orchestrate a situation or ask, you know, and I think that's something like kind of in career with, with you and me, maybe we felt that where it's like, what well, is there a perfect time to take a big, scary change? Well, if you're waiting for the perfect time, you may never find that perfect time because you might just be looking for a reason to procrastinate because you're scared. Basically, we all have to be Fred, who's just like, oh, yeah, I'll ask you out. I know. <laughs> Angelina. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Fred is a great example of the kind of person. And I mean, I wish I were this kind of person who's just like, very larkish, very, this is what I have in mind. I'm sure it's going to work out. If it doesn't, you know, who cares? He's offhand about it. She's offhand about it. They clearly are both very pleased with the outcome. But it's like, I'm not that kind of person. I'm identifying with Harry and Ron here. I am not identifying with the insouciance of Fred. <laughs> My favorite moment in the chapter, I think, is the description of Angelina when um, Fred asks her. And it's like she looked at him appraisingly. Yeah. And I just sort of picture her like giving him the up and down and being like, yeah, fine. Yeah. yeah and kind of the little smile on her mouth. Yeah. And the wonderful thing when, when Professor McConaughey is like springing it on Harry, like not only do you have to do these three tasks and the dragon and all this, but it's like you're going to have to fight the dragon the school dance. It's very something we can all really identify with. Oh, absolutely. And the, I mean, it's just a brilliant title for the chapter, yes. right? The unexpected task yes. that it is asking someone out because the human drama is just as important as, you know, the world collapsing. I think one of the reasons that we love the diary of Anne Frank is because she's scared about her family. She's worried about politics, but like also she has a crush. All of those things are human and all of the interiority of that feels high stakes. 
And so, yeah, fighting dragons and asking out Cho Chang, these are equally terrifying. Well, it's funny because I had never thought about how funny the title of the chapter was until you until you directed my attention to it. Because it is, it's like, it's uh, the whole book is about the tasks, the tasks, the three tasks, the first task, the second task. Are you ready for the task? Are you thinking about the task? And Hermione's saying like, you need to prepare for the task. And then it's like the unexpected task. You think it's going to be some deadly thing. And it's, right. you know, but it's, oh my gosh, this is just as bad, if not. I think we also see a little bit about how Cedric would have been the better champion if Harry hadn't gotten this extra help and it hadn't been rigged. Cedric asks out Cho and he was probably really nervous about it. He wasn't expecting to have to go to a dance. But he was older and he's very, very handsome. So I do think that makes it easier to ask. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Poor little, like, short Harry. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, and the whole thing with Fleur Delacour is very funny. And also lots of foreshadowing for future books when Fleur ends up being a much larger character than we expect. Like, with everything with Harry Potter, like, it only becomes more delicious as you know it better and better because you see how the complexity of the storytelling is its much more than you realize the first time you go through it. You know, I always find new things every time I look. Well, given that that is the premise of our podcast, I (laughs) agree. (laughs) I'm in the right place. Yes. Yes. You are among friends. (laughs) Great. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Gretchen. It was so fun to talk to you. And our guests are always, you know, wonderful, but it is rare that we have a guest as wonderful as you who also loves to nerd out about Harry Potter as much. (laughs) Well, I've been looking forward to this because there's nothing I like talking about more than happiness and Harry Potter. And so the idea of getting to talk about them both with somebody who's just as interested as I am, um, like that's the, my idea of a, of a perfect time. Everybody should go subscribe to the Happier Podcast with Gretchen Rubin and get her new book, The Four Tendencies. We're so grateful to you, Gretchen. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you.